The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Danny Cannell. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, lots to get to here on a Monday. Thanks to all of you that are hanging out as we come to you live at youtube.com slash cover three. Uh, a few of our thoughts, takeaways, highlights, shout outs from the bowl action so far. We've already got eight games in the book. And as we're coming to you live, yes, this is not exactly a Myrtle Beach Bowl watch party, but... Dang it, if something awesome happens, I, I think it's going to be impossible for us not to at least acknowledge or react to it. Uh, also, some uh, news within the transfer portal and some of your questions. And this is where I want to address not just the live audience, but also those of you who are taking us in later on whatever platform you got. It is time for us to pay more respect to the big old bag of mail. We've been disrespectful to that big old bag of mail, which means we want you to fill it up Best way to leave us a mailbag question is leave us a five-star review. Include that mailbag question in the review. We will add it to a future mailbag episode, uh, of which we will certainly uh, be including more in the calendar once we get through the end of bowl season. So fill it up, all your off-season questions. Now's the time uh, to get into it. Let's. I guess let's go ahead and start with, uh, you know, we were discussing your, your Boca Raton Bowl uh, visit. Danny, you got to be there in person. You got to see a piece of college football history as Western Kentucky quarterback Bailey Zappi breaks not only B.J. Simon's single-season passing yards record, which had stood for nearly two decades back at Texas Tech. He also breaks the Joe Burrow single-season passing touchdowns record. So a phenomenal day. And, oh, yeah, by the way, the Hilltoppers won and kind of stumped App State, too, uh, along the way. So big season for Tyson Helton, big season for Bailey Zappi, Jareth Stearns. I mean, everybody that came over as part of that influx of Houston Baptist offense. What do you think, seeing the man up, up close in person? It was fun, man. It was a fun game. Um, it was hot. It was really hot. It was 82 degrees at kickoff. And the announcer comes on and said, welcome to Boca Raton where it's 82 degrees. We are the 
warmest place in the country at this moment. And it was baking a little bit. I was a little bit worried about the guys, but it was also breezy as I texted you guys before <laughs> kickoff. Didn't impact our game, our guy Bailey Zappi, though. He was spinning it. He th- like, And this has been a pretty good bowl for quarterbacks. Dylan Gabriel versus Zach Wilson the year before. You know, Chase Price versus Bailey Zappi. One of those sides had a pretty good game. And, um, you know, this offense is fun. It's fun to watch. They stretch the field vertically, and the ball comes off his hand, like, really nice. I was really impressed, as I've been all season long. But you see somebody in person, it's a little bit different. So, yeah, I actually got to go down the sideline, watch a few from down there. So it was was definitely impressive. And when Burrow threw 60 a couple years ago, I didn't think we'd see it pass this quick. Like, you know, he had a couple playoff games, an SEC championship game. I just didn't think it would get surpassed this quickly. And yet here we are just a couple years later. Now it's a different system. They absolutely own it. They're like, we're just going to throw it. I mean, there was, you know, the first, I think the first or second touchdown, they're on the one. And just, they just throwing little shorts. Yeah, little side at, like just throw it tight to see if he walks it in. They own it, and Tyson Helton admitted it. Like, we're going to – like, I, I think I told you guys on the on the uh, locks pod, he was going to go after it, and sure enough, mm-hmm. they got it. So it was a fun game to watch, though, and a great way to spend Saturday just as a fan, just watching college football, not having to work, just watching it was pretty cool. I do think it's good that the record for the, has gone back to a group of five smaller school because I've always felt like growing up, that's where all the passing records took place. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like it's like why Houston yeah like the fact Joe Burrow was able to do it at LSU and the SEC is what's inc- truly remarkable about that season but yeah like all the passing records have always been like like with David Klingler at Houston when they were in Andre Ware when they would be running the run and shoot before anybody else was running it and now with like an air raid team where you throw it a hundred times that guy should have the touchdown record yeah, yeah. we want nine and five teams not national mm-hmm. champions yeah the <laughs> national want- champions have enough all right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did do you think that? And this was um, I, I wrote something. I was I had the duties for it for CBSSports.com, and and I was trying to you know put something together where I was like, okay, you know, we don't always necessarily remember the records as being like one of the best single season passing performances, or the individuals as necessarily being you know a piece of the the college football lore. In fact, it's more like you're part of the college football trivia. And and B.J. Simons, probably more than Joe Burrow, considering Joe Burrow's got the Heisman Trophy and some more recency. Do you think that this performance, combined with some of the the extra storylines that we have been telling to you, the Cover 3 viewers and listeners, do you think that Bailey Zappi is going to be kind of a piece of college football history this season that will remember it? Or do you think it becomes more of a trivia item over time? I'll remember it. Um, no, it'll probably be trivia more than anything. I mean, that's the thing. That's that's part of the fun of college football are these records. Like, that's how I remember who David Klingler is to this day was for the records he set when he was at Houston or, you know, like Timmy Chang at Hawaii, those kind of things. You remember who they are. But I think for the casual, it'll probably be forgotten to history. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I, it'll it'll be a trivia question uh, unless he goes on and tears it up in the NFL. But like. The guys Tom just mentioned, they usually don't. You know, I had um, there's a guy that works with CBS New York, and he's a researcher, and he was in my ear constantly, like, get Bailey Zappi to New York, get him to the Heisman. I'm like, you lost too many games. Like, if they're undefeated or they were part of a, you know, a championship run, like Burrow, you get tend to be remembered a little bit more. And again, like if it wasn't the Boca Bowl, if it was the New Year's Six Bowl, 
might have been remembered a little bit differently. But ultimately, I think it'll probably be just a, a trivia question. And it'll probably be a record that probably gets passed. Yeah. Again, like, you know, it'll probably be another couple of years. We'll be sitting here again talking about the next guy who breaks the record. I didn't want to take any of his shine, but I think that this, I think the person who might benefit, like, not person, but Western Kentucky benefits from this. Tyson Helton benefits from this. This falls in line with the Brandon Dowdy 5,000 passing yard season. If, if the casuals, if the normies, if they look at a Western Kentucky team and all they think about is huge numbers of passing yards and passing touchdowns, that's good for recruiting. That's good for Western Kentucky in general. I feel like if we're going to talk about long-lasting impact, it's great for Tyson Helton and great for Western Kentucky to be able to point to that and be like, look, this is what you can do and, and you're right, Danny, if uh, if he does go on to be successful at the next level, that's only going to add to us knowing and talking about these records that were broken. Uh, any other uh, any other highlights or, or just individual like shout outs that you want to have from the first uh, first eight games of action so far in uh, in the bowl season? Uh, we talked about it a little bit on bowls preseason or preview daily. Uh, shout out to Utah State and Blake Anderson for finishing the job and finishing the year with a win over a Power 5 team. Just was one of the better stories of the season. And uh, also, like I said, shout out to Laura Rutledge, who has been is the number one sideline reporter so far in bowl season for just her L.A. Bowl performance. Just outstanding. What about you, DK? Um, I do think, like, we're already seeing a wild game here in the middle. It's 14-7. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still the first quarter. I do think, and I was texting you guys from the game, I do think it looks like there's a lot of defenders who are like, just get me to the offseason healthy. Yes. <laughs> like, just, let's, like, let's just put this guy down. Let's not go for the kill shot, which, trust me, I am totally okay with. That's been kind of my takeaway. I don't know the record. And remember, I, was, I leaned that way in our discussion, but then I picked a lot of unders in our picks. But I was like, that's probably going to be the trend of what you'll see. I just think, you know, there's a lot of guys nowadays that just don't want to get hurt in their bowl game. Yeah, we had uh, UAB BYU snuck over. Uh, obviously, Coastal and Northern blasted it. Maybe Middle Toledo that finished at 55. That might have been. That was an over. That yeah. was another over. Yeah. Uh, Louisiana Marshall hit 57. Obviously, an over in the Boca over. Bowl. Um, yeah, I think it might just be LA Bowl. I think that's the only under so far. Yeah. So my big takeaway was, uh, how about this? Underdogs are six and two against the spread so far, but not just even covering the spread. Four outright winners. Uh, that would of course be Middle Tennessee. Congratulations to Jordan. Uh, Western Kentucky, UAB, and Utah State all getting it done on the field. Only Louisiana and Liberty have covered as favorites. And and Liberty covered the hell. Yeah, that spread his favorites because that was just a waxing 56 to 20. And it was a never in doubt 56 to 20. The game was 33 to 10 at halftime. Yeah, it was like we we talked about, like one team has an NFL QB and the other one didn't. And it was obvious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is some transfer portal news uh, is amazing when we perfectly predict great landing spots for players. And then they listen to the cover three podcast and, and, and then just go and, and follow the, the free advice. So, uh, Bo Nix, we will be in touch. If you want to do an NIL deal for next season with Oregon, we can, we can send you a mug. We can send you an <laughs> engraved mug, and you can take pictures of it on your IG. So, Bo Nix announces his intention to transfer to Oregon. 
I think that without, you know, recycling some of the same ideas while we thought him taking, uh, taking a, a quarterback spot in the Pac-12, taking a quarterback spot in another conference beyond the SEC, I, th- I think that those all seem like, you know, reasonable takes to be able to continue here. But with the news official, you know, what, what really stands out to you about Bo Nix's move? I, it, it makes sense. It that's really it's like that's why we were predicting it would happen. I just I feel like Oregon fans might not be as thrilled by it because a lot of Oregon fans were complaining about that offense this year with Anthony Brown, and there are a lot of similarities between Anthony Brown's game and Bo Nix's game. Although I do think Bo Nix is a better passer. I also think that just getting out of the SEC will be good for him because I, I feel like we've got plenty of data to suggest that Bo Nix is, is a good quarterback, but he's not good enough to win you the SEC West. He's not good enough to win you the SEC. And now I think that going to the Pac-12 where he's not going to be going up against Alabama, LSU, all these teams, Texas A&M every single week, we might see some better numbers. We might help him improve his draft stock, and it could be good for Oregon as far as maybe not only winning that division, but winning that conference and going up against a USC team that certainly seems pretty revitalized by Lincoln Riley already, judging by the way that they're recruiting on the trail at this point. So I think this is something that could work out pretty well for both sides. I kind of want to give it a C plus. Like, that's why I look at it because I think it might work, but at the same time, it's still Bo Nix, who was incredibly yeah. up and down. But I think I think this is a lot about this is a positive thing from a player who's tough, who's a good worker, who's gonna be a good leader. I think he'll bring a great energy. And I don't, you know, I don't know the health of that locker room, but I feel like Bo Nix is a good kid, like a good football player from the locker room perspective if he could eliminate his mistakes and you know because he had these stretches where he was pretty good and it was mm-hmm. like oh maybe he's turned the corner and then you have a setback and most of the time it was against a really good team you know a really good defense which is understandable so maybe if he gets on a run he could he could be that quarterback they're looking for I think it's going to be interesting because I wonder if he shows up on some Heisman lists you know just because He's Bo Nix, new uniform. Oregon will probably be a top 25 team. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not ready to go that far. But if you watch what Dillingham did at Florida State with Jordan Travis, like when Mackenzie Milton and they were rotating quarterbacks, once they stopped doing that and it was just Jordan Travis's team, Jordan Travis actually played really well. Mm-hmm. And they did not, like, at one time he was, he had thrown for, 10 touchdowns, one interception, and he had rushed for another seven touchdowns. You're like 17 touchdowns to one interception on a very, you know, on a Florida State team that wasn't very good. And that's developing a quarterback. Like they maximized Jordan Travis. So I think they're going to want to do some of the same concepts. I think he's going to take some of that style, that system with him to Oregon, to Eugene. And I think Bo Nix might fit pretty well in that system. So I, I said C plus, like, because I think we're going to get into this. Oh, is this a home run? And there's going to be some guys who don't even start, like, who don't yeah. even win the job. Like, I also think this is really interesting. What does this mean for Oregon's quarterback room? Like, what does a Ty Thompson do? But yet, if he couldn't breed out Anthony Brown, is there maybe he was overhyped or maybe he wasn't ready? You just don't know until kind of you see a spring competition. So I like it. I think it's exciting for him. To, you know, I think you're right. I think it's best to him to get out of the SEC, kind of get some 
fresh life in them and see what happens. Yeah. And another thing that you got to consider too, like you mentioned the Bo Nix moments, like the crazy dumb things that he sometimes does, which also sometimes turn out to be amazing, brilliant things like that touchdown against LSU. But I think if you watch Bo Nix closely, most of those dumb, dumb moments came when he was under pressure. Yeah. And at Auburn, he was playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in the SEC, going up against SEC defensive linemen. At Oregon, he's probably going to be playing behind the best offensive line in the country, going up against defensive lines that are good, but not quite to the same level that he's been facing. So we might be able to see a more refined, more patient, more not just you know playing by the seat of his pants, Bo Nix. Um, Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator at Oregon, was the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Auburn for <laughs> Bo Nix's freshman season a freshman season that started with Bo Nix doing crazy Bo Nix stuff and beating mm -hmm. Oregon. Incredible. But and it, it might have been, statistically, might have been his best year. Mm -hmm. It also seems to fall in line with like the Spencer Rattler, South Carolina transfer. Mm -hmm. like, who knows you better than the coach that was right there with you at your old school? You know, Shane Beamer saying like, okay, I understand that Spencer's got this bad rap, but I, I've been with this guy. I've been with him behind the scenes. I think I can know how to bring the best out of him. Same thing for Kenny Dillingham. He's going to Dan Lanning, and he's saying, look, I worked with this guy when he was a freshman. I understand you know, what his strengths and weaknesses are. I think I can be able uh, to bring him in and have him really help our football team. You know, sometimes uh, it's it's great to not great to know, but always good to remember that those relationships never stop. And that being able to maintain those relationships is just another piece of the, you know, the college football coaches moving, players moving. Uh, it, it can come together in a way that could be very fruitful. And I'm sure that Oregon fans and I guess South Carolina fans as well, if we're going to follow that same narrative, uh, are hoping that their uh, their former assistants are going to be able to maximize what those quarterbacks can do. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why smart coaching staffs right now, like you'll see some schools recruiting a kid out of high school that's, you know, like a four-star and maybe they're like a five-win, six-win team and they're going up against, you know, like the Alabamas of the world and they really don't have a chance to get them, but they keep recruiting them because in this transfer portal age, that kid goes to Alabama next year, a year or two from now, he might not be staring up at that depth chart feeling great and be entering that portal. So it's important to establish those relationships because like you said, most of these transfers end up being, you know, like these kids don't have the same amount of time that they did in high school to be re-recruited all over again. It's generally about pre-existing relationships. And that's part of the reason why it's easy to sometimes easy to predict where a transfer is going to end up ahead of time. That has changed dramatically because I, I, it didn't happen to me, but I had several teammates who had stories of coaches who chewed them out. You know, you dumb M believe the biggest mistake of your life because, you know, you told them you're not going to X. You're not mm -hmm. going to this school. And they just got chewed out. You you can't do that today because you mm -hmm. might be like you're mm -hmm. saying, Tom, you're probably like, best of luck, buddy. You know, I hope you go crush it. And then you text them <laughs> a month in. Hey, just thinking about you. It's like, I mean, it is absolutely the recruiting process never stops. Never stops. Even if they're not in your team. It sounds exhausting. Yeah, that's I mean, it's like we could we could complain about how much coaches are getting paid right now. But man, it's a 24 seven job. Unbelievable. Coming up on the other side, we are going to open up the big old bag of mail, including a suggestion for postseason eligibility. We'll get into that and more next
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. All right. Into the big old bag of mail. This question is from Richland96. And Richland asks, I've never liked the idea of six and six teams in a bowl game. Six wins just doesn't seem good enough for a bowl game. Let's move to a 12-team playoff and give every other team that has won eight games a bowl game. That will make the postseason much more exciting. What say you? No. I like six and six teams because you don't bail on the season. And I feel like the two teams in the Myrtle Beach Bowl are a good example of that because about five or six weeks into the season, ODU and Tulsa were dead in the water. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you get to get hot at the end of the season carry that into the postseason, like what that can just mean for your experience as a player or what you're building as the head coach of a program. It six and six sort of feels right to me. Yeah. And it's more than anything, like from the competitive standpoint, I understand like a team that only won half its game shouldn't be rewarded. Like, and, and I, I get that logic, but it stems from when they used to only play 11 games. So six wins used to be a winning record, but more than anything, if you eliminate teams, you know, if you only allow eight win teams to go to the bowl, the playoffs, it's a lot fewer bowl games for us to watch. And I like having bowl games to watch because it's literally a Monday afternoon right now. And if, you know, we're watching football because <laughs> of a bowl game. So, yeah, no, I any idea that involves fewer bowl games, I'm not going to be in support of. I totally get what he's saying. I lean towards that side like. It's supposed to be a reward. It feels like you're giving a trophy to everybody, which I don't like. But to Tom's point, we're watching football on a Monday, like when there wouldn't be anything else on. We had six games on Saturday that wouldn't have been on. It would have just been more hype for the playoffs, so we'd have to wait longer. Um, I do like. Would you guys think it would ever work? I don't. I, this would require a massive blow up. Like if you had the first preseason was your bowl weekend and that was just a kickoff weekend was your exhibition bowl season. So you would have had the Boca Bowl August 23rd and we would have the Myrtle Beach Bowl August 23rd and just had, and maybe it made sat maybe it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, just bowl weekend, except the bowls are played in the preseason. Then you protect from opt-outs. You protect from guys quitting. It's the only solution that, prevents the opt-outs. I just think we're too ingrained historically. And then the true postseason would just be the playoffs. Mm. Mike, what I don't like about that is then 
the players are at their freshest for an exhibition game. Well, it would still count kind of like, you know, as far as the playoffs count, like it would just be an extra game. (laughs) I think there should be like a happy medium where like we keep the bowl games, but what we do is we kind of take a bowl approach to like that first weekend of the season where, you know, instead of having teams scheduling games a decade in advance, at the end of a season, we could have like the bowl game. We could figure out a system where the bowl games determine who you play in your first game of the next season and like a big non-conference. So it would set up a lot of, you know, pretty big non-conference matchups and just interesting matchups in that first week of the year compared to we still get some, but we also get a whole lot of, you know, this team versus some FCS team that it's a 50 point favorite against. So I think that could be kind of like an interesting, not necessarily a bowl game, but use the bowl games to determine next year's schedule. I looked up um, over the in years past, because this discussion always comes up like my senior year at Florida state. I think we had 20 bowls. We've doubled mm-hmm. them. And I think it was around, everybody was around eight wins. I would say, you know, there were games stacked up on both networks on Saturday. You had ABC and ESPN. You know, maybe it would feel a little more special if you had less, but you could still air them. Then we wouldn't have games on Monday. (laughs) Again, going back to that. I don't know. I, I, I get why we have them. And you know what? People watch these. I mean, go look at the ratings for a regular NBA season game. Go look at any other sport that's in their, you know, professional sport. They're not touching college football bowl games. So even though they might feel crappy, they're still making a lot of money for ESPN. So they're going to keep airing them. Yeah. The tourism angle of this and the idea of the bowl trip with your teammates or your family making the trip. Yeah. I just, I don't think going to Florida in August hits quite the same <laughs> as going to Florida in December. Yeah. Like one of these, one of these is a big selling point. I, I can, I can yeah. understand why you're getting behind it. The, the Idaho potato bowl, though, would be way more exciting. Like that'd oh, be yeah. a better destination spot that time of year. You'd get that. a lot more, you'd get a lot more Midwestern and Northern bowl games in the summer than you would in the winter. That's true. Yeah. If, if we want to spread them out a little bit more, I've, I like that. I think that I've heard the, the bowls in the spring, like replace all spring games with bowl games or some sort of like spring scrimmages. I've, I've heard that suggestion. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm all the way on board with it. I, I think that the, you know, let's be honest, uh, bowl season TM has bought me, you know, they've just, they bought me with all of their bowl swag over the years. I'm just, I'm just carrying water for the, the bowl industrial complex, but and like to steal a line from uh, our colleague, Gary Parrish, who, who always likes to remind you, the thing about a 68 team tournament is you got to put 68 teams in there. Mm-hmm. And the thing about 42 bowl games, listen, if if we don't have enough six and six teams, we start pulling from smart five and seven teams with good APR scores. <laughs> so at least we've got all six and six teams, right? Like at least we've got enough to be able to meet uh, what we have right now in terms of our eligibility. Speaking of the bowl lobby buying support, shout out to the Mayo Bowl. For sending uh, nice <laughs> Charlotte Sports Foundation Duke's Mayo Bowl always uh, brings the heat. It, we they got we got an, a personal apology from the executive director of the Duke's Mayo Bowl for accidentally misleading the college football public in last year's game in thinking that mm-hmm. it was going to be a Mayo bath. Mm-hmm. And we have this year. Do you see they agreed? Both coaches yep. agreed they're going to do a Mayo bath. And you know what? Mac, Mac and Shane are two coaches who I am not surprised to be like, yeah, go for it. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they know that it'll be great. They yeah, understand yeah. about what the viral moment's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think that college football playoff expansion is going to change 
the bowl math such that we're going to get a bunch of people in here. If I'm making a prediction, I think every college football playoff game will be a bowl game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and not on campus. I don't, this is a prediction. Like I, I think that the on-campus aspect of this might be gone. And we just see in the same way that when the four BCS bowls reached out and grabbed the cotton and the mm -hmm. peach elevated them, I think that they're going to reach out and grab a few more bowls and save them and pull There's them up into the new playoff era. There's an off-season idea for us. We should draft which bowls we think will get playoff, you know, like be selected for playoff in the future. Got to yeah. do one of the like Jacksonville. I mean, it's got to you got to tackle Outback. Yeah, yeah. Just well, or will they uh, just create new bowls? Like, and they all happen to be in NFL stadiums. <laughs> you know, who's pushing hard is Frisco. They got two, and they took yeah, on that extra one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'm saying the Frisco Bowl is going to end up being a playoff somehow. Jerry Jones is going to grease the skids. Arkansas is going to be in it every single yeah. year. <laughs> hey, they they get the most out of that stadium and uh, and out of all those hotels. You know, good job, Frisco Bowl community. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh. Go to here we go. This next question comes from Cal. Awesome pod. Thanks for the insight and the entertainment. A couple months ago, you guys went through the Georgia defensive depth chart and decided nine of them would be NFL players. Could you do the same thing with Ohio State's offense? I think that all 10 or 11 of Ohio State's offensive starters will end up in the NFL. What say us? It's certainly possible, yes. I was just going to say, looking at them, the skill positions are in. <laughs> are locks. Yeah. And then, like, you go to the offensive line, and, you know, I bet they all get at least free agent contracts. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I bet they get some sort of opportunity, whether they parlay it into a job or not, or whether they're a practice squad. I would think so. Like so, yeah. I think I think you would. So Nicholas Petit yeah. Frere is in. Thayer I Munford so. is in. Yeah, Thayer Munford will probably be drafted in a couple months. Dewan Jones. I think we'll see. I mean, he's still got. I think he's coming back next year. We'll see. It. He's not. He's he's definitely got the size and the frame that you look for. I don't know if he's got quite the tape for it yet, but I think that he's somebody who would get in camp for sure. Paris Johnson, I think, will eventually be an NFL player. Luke Weipler, their center, too early to tell. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the one person I'm the sketchiest about is tight end Jeremy Ruckert. I really? think he'll I think he'll end up um I think he's good. I just don't know if he is I don't know how we'll have to see what he does at the combine, honestly. I that's my one very I think he's a good football player who won't test well. And I think that kind of hurts your draft stock sometimes. I think he's got six round pick written all over him. Yeah. Everyone loves the Jeremy Ruckert size tight ends right now. I mean, you yeah. got to have a couple of yeah. them in your NFL. Oh, I, think, I think he should be on an NFL roster. I just don't know how NFL teams are going to view him at this point. He was always that toy in that Ohio State offense where yeah, he gets lost. Yeah. You can overwhelm an opponent with all these splash plays with all these other people, but you get down inside the red zone or you get in a goal to go opportunity and look, your linebacker's just not going to stick with him or he's going to put his body on him, get you in that box out and be able to pull in the touchdown. It feels like, uh, you know, all of those all of those tight ends that have been stacking up, basically, does it go back to, and I promise this isn't just because the Ravens uh, are hot topic this week, but like, does it go back to like the Mark Andrews? How so? 
I'm thinking about the uh, the tight end that can go in line or uh, or not, who is going to be you know has a big enough body and good enough hands to put a defender on their back when they get into the end zone. You know, coming from a, a prolific passing offense with an understanding of modern concepts and what to do when the play breaks down, kind of that that kind of fair. Uh, I don't know if that's where it started, but I mean, that is definitely kind of like to be drafted early. You you have to be like Kyle Pitts. You have to be a great you have to basically be a receiver. And then it, they don't really care if you can block or not <laughs> in the first round. I feel like for the other guys, unless you just have that crazy freakish athleticism. Yeah, you've got to be able to show the ability to not only be able to run those routes and catch the ball, but you've got to be able to stick in and block. And I do think that's where Ruckert will com- like compare well to some of the other tight ends in this class. And that's the other thing, too. I don't think this is a great tight end class overall, which I think would help Ruckert. But again, I I just have the feeling like when you get to the combine, maybe he'll blow me away and he'll have better numbers than I expect. It's just I don't think he's going to have like the 40 or like the crazy, you know, cone drill time and all that kind of stuff that's going to make everybody swoon for him. I think he's just going to be a solid player who you like a lot more when you watch the tape than you do in tights. He's a guy I think in like 2000 would have been a higher draft pick. But I think the way the game has evolved where they're looking for a George Kittle or something along those lines, like a Kyle Pitts, you, the, the, they used to be like, you know, 30 years ago, if you couldn't block, it was, uh-oh, like it's going to be a problem. Now it's if you can't create a mismatch with a linebacker, then that's more of a problem. So I think it's just the evolution of the position, so much so that tight ends are trying to count themselves as wide receivers so they get better franchise tags. And they're, you know, proving it production-wise because they're catching as many as, you know, the best uh, wide receivers out there. Well, you don't have to tell that to me, Danny, because on my fantasy team, I start three tight ends at once. There you go. <laughs> lunatic. Chip like runs it. the all chips running like 31 personnel in our fantasy league all the time. Yeah. Just to, I, I draft no running backs or no wide receivers waiver wire all season. But if I've got a Pat Mahomes and three tight ends, I think I can go and get myself four touchdowns on a Sunday. The Browns might be tight end heavy today. Mm-hmm. See, <laughs> Browns might be starting a tight end to QB the way they're going. <laughs> Wildcat this thing. Yeah. Um, all right, let's uh, one more. This one is from Iceman. Iceman says, "Great show." It is often discussed how Atlanta, Southern California, and Dallas-Fort Worth are recruiting hotbeds because lots of people have moved there in the past 10 to 20 years. Whenever this comes up, I always wonder why New York City and the surrounding towns are not hotbeds, even though they have a larger population than all the places previously mentioned. I'm wondering if you have any insight on why this might be. It's not just the number of people. Real estate, football fields are big. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's also just football is bigger in those parts of the country than it is in the Northeast. Like New York is obviously the hub of the Northeast and it is for a lot of you know the United States. But like football is just not embedded there the way it is. Part of that is, like you said, Chip, the real estate. There's not football fields everywhere you go because everybody's kind of living on top of each other, which makes it easier to get a basketball court in the middle of a concrete jungle than a football field. But it's also just culturally like football is always been popular in certain regions of the country and it still is. Whereas in New York, there's a bunch of it's, you know, the quote unquote melting pot. 
probably more soccer fans in New York than there are football fans. And being, you know, just it's it's not the most popular sport in the city. Therefore, kids aren't growing up and playing it the way that they are in other areas of the country. Giants legend Danny Cannell. Yeah, but I I think it's I I hear that point. I would agree with that. But the NFL is still popular. Like the Giants and mm-hmm. Jets are still oh, yeah. popular in New York City. But I get like you know it's always the mecca. Like oh, we talk about the mecca, even though the Knicks haven't been any good. But there are. There's been Rucker, you know, the, you know, the basketball courts there in the city that have been always produced. I, yeah, that absolutely has to do with it though, because uh, there's a passion for football in the South and Texas and in California from a very young age that just doesn't exist. You know, maybe it's, it's space in the Mm -hmm. city, but out in the boroughs, it's probably cost because it's expensive. You know, like you get out in Queens or you get out in some of these other places it's expensive to get pads and to load up and travel different places, you know? So I, I was trying to think about that. I was, it is surprising, but I think there's probably a bunch of different reasons why it's, why you don't see it as a hotbed of talent. Yeah. And it's like, if you look at it this way, like Northern New Jersey is pretty much suburban New York. Mm-hmm. Most of the football talent in that area comes from Northern New Jersey. Like, right. so there is the interest. It's just in the suburbs it's not so much in the city and we don't consider it new york talent but in reality a lot of those kids from new jersey you could consider new york talent right because their parents probably work in new york Mm -hmm. yeah does it good point is there something about in um the south or in the midwest and i really cannot speak just from my own experience to southern california or california in general because i'm not sure but I, I think about high school football specifically just being so much more tied to like local communities and being at the center of like where, where everything is like there are um, there are high schools that were playing for the North Carolina state championship just, uh, just last weekend. And I, I remember there was, I forget, I think it was the two a game, but it's just sort of like classic story of two high schools where in that town, in that County on Friday night, everybody's going to the game. Like it, mm-hmm. it truly is like a, a unifying factor. And in the New York Metro area, there's just so much going on that I, I don't know if like a high school football program would be able to hold that kind of attention and support when you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of other places for that to be spent. I also think that it's professional sports and the prevalence of them in the areas. Cause like the NFL, the NBA, major league baseball, when they first came into existence, all their franchises were located on the East Coast and the Northeast. And then some, you know, you kind of gradually spread out to the Midwest as the population did. And the South and a lot of the West weren't really served with professional sports teams in those leagues. So that's why their college teams became a bigger deal down there because they were their local teams. And then we haven't really seen until the recent last 50 years with expansion of pro sports, them moving into the Southeast, them moving into Texas, them moving out further West and in the Pacific Northwest. And I think that has to play a role, too. Like, if you grew up in New York, you've got, you know, the Knicks, Giants, the Jets. Now you've got the Nets. You've got, you know. Hockey. Yeah, you've got the the Rangers, the Islanders. You've got a thousand choices. Like, college sports are not going to be as prevalent to you. And also, like, the local media there, what are they? They're not talking about Rutgers football. They're talking about the Jets. They're talking about the Giants. It's just not as big of a deal. And you can always always sniff out when... When, uh, when, when all the decisions, content decisions in sports are being made by somebody from New York City. Yes. Boy, my college football segments will get cut. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> oh man. I remember if you want to jump in on a future mailbag episode, you can do it by leaving us a five star review and put your question uh, within that review. You can follow him on Twitter at Danny Cannell. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We'll be back on Thursday for our next group of bowl locks, 11 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday for the next round of bowl locks. We'll take you through the following week, which will be through December 30th. So again, Thursday, 11 a.m. We'll be back live for the next round of bowl locks on the audio form. Bowl season daily continues to roll on, getting you set with 10 to 15 minutes of bowl breakdowns for that day. Every single morning, subscribe so you don't even have to go hunt for it. It's delivered right to you. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. See ya. here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.